This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined in studio by Kate Kelly and Robin Pogerbin, authors of The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, an Investigation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Kate, how did you and Robin get started even on this beat? This isn't necessarily what you've both spent your careers doing, Supreme Court news coverage. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, uh, it's kind of a surprising story. Um, I was going about my usual uh, beat work, which deals with Wall Street, investing, and major figures um, in the markets, and uh, got an incoming tip um, about something that an old acquaintance of mine from growing up in Washington, D.C. thought I should look into. It turned out it was someone that had known a young Brett Kavanaugh as a, a high school student at Georgetown Prep, which was the Jesuit boys' school he attended in Maryland. And uh, the tip had to do with yearbook references to a young woman that Kavanaugh and this tipster had known back in the day named Renata Schroeder. And this was a woman who was a friend of Kavanaugh and some of his friends and went on a couple of dates with, you know, him and, and members of his circle but also somebody that they bragged about um, having had sexual interactions with. And they sort of memorialized those brags in their yearbook. And I went on to do a story about that and to talk to people on the record about it um, and also to hear from Renata herself, who's now a married mother of three and lives in Connecticut. Um, And it just set me on a path to doing some coverage of the Kavanaugh confirmation in very unexpected ways. Um, So I ended up joining our fairly large team at The Times that was covering the topic. Robin also has a, a parallel story. Yes, I was in Brett Kavanaugh's class at Yale University. We were the class of 1987, and I was also starting to hear some tips, particularly about Deborah Ramirez, who, as you might recall, was the classmate from Yale who alleged that he exposed himself to her at a freshman year dorm party. And so I was hearing those tips. I also was brought into the Kavanaugh team. We had a a rather large group of people at the Times who were covering the hearings as they developed. And uh, they were interested in getting the yearbook from from Yale in order to look back at Kavanaugh from those years, as well as getting in touch with some of his classmates, which I was able to do. We had some friends in common. Now, one thing as a reader I found was that even though the events uh, that you're describing of the confirmation hearing took place a year ago, you and I are talking today on November 19th, there was so much that I had forgotten already. Is that one of the reasons you felt it was time to write this book rather than waiting, say, for more years or more jurisprudence to come out of Kavanaugh's time on the Supreme Court? Yes, I think we were left when he was confirmed on October 6th of 2018. We were left with a feeling of unfinished business, as I think much of the country was, as well as lingering questions, as well as notes in our notebooks that we hadn't been able to fully pursue. These events flew by um, in kind of rapid fire succession in real time. It triggered a lot of strong emotions um, on the part of many people around the country. We wanted to go back at this topic and this experience in a more in-depth, detailed way to try to process some of what happened, to try to understand it better, to try to get to to the bottom of some of these 
events and facts. Um, but we also thought it was important to try to get that um, first draft of history, uh, as it might be called, out on the anniversary of his first year on the court. I think another point that's worth making there is that we had forgotten things, too, um, and we were in the midst of covering the story real time as well as afterwards. There was such a barrage of information over such a concise period of time, which is really to say from about September 15th uh, of 2018 through October 6th when he was sworn in. And there there was a lot that we hadn't even gotten to in terms of the reporting and the journalism, not to mention opinions that Judge Kavanaugh had written on the D.C. Circuit Court and certainly um, friends that we wanted to talk to from recent years as well as distant years and video and speeches he had made. I mean, there were so many things that we needed to review in order to better understand who he was as a person and a judge and to understand the context of those times. And that's even before we sort of picked up a phone and started doing interviews. So just catching up on what was out there in the media, what uh, was coming together as a more cohesive narrative and what were sort of the outlier bits of reporting that actually didn't stand up to scrutiny or perhaps coming from people who didn't have as clear memories as they thought they did or weren't as reliable as they thought they were, sifting through all that and just getting back to zero and saying, okay, we have a clear sense of what is out there, what we want to look into, and who are the correct people to try to talk to and prioritize. I mean, we ended up calling and emailing hundreds of people, but you know, just working out what our to-do list was required a lot of kind of re-examining everything that was even already out there. Since you guys weren't necessarily coming at this for as you know seasoned court reporter you know legal legal types was it difficult to sort of sift through all of the elements that were being considered as Kavanaugh was up for this position and sort of the minutia of the law and going through his past decisions what was that like for you I think what we found was that it was a valuable process for us, as it always is, even as a beat, a, a reporter who is immersed in a subject, you want to come to it with fresh eyes and ask your sources to educate you on a subject. And that was certainly the case here. We wanted to understand not only these proceedings and what happened behind the scenes and how these hearings unfolded and the degree to which politics informed these developments, but also to understand his record on the D.C. Circuit. And what those 12 years of his rulings and more than 300 decisions involved, how people understood him as a jurist, to look at how he had been covered by legal, the legal press and how his decisions had been processed, and also to understand his evolution um, as a judge from law school through working as summer associate to clerkships uh, and how his ideology solidified over time. Uh, so I think coming to it um, with a set of fresh eyes was actually a benefit to us because we are also we're writing for a general audience and we didn't want to alienate people with minutia that to some extent they didn't feel they had access to. I think one of the things that I appreciated most as a reader were the look behind the scenes that some of the people you talked to were able to give. Now, something that other people who also watched the various, you know, confirmation hearing elements might remember was when Koontz and Flake left the chambers briefly. Could you, Kate, talk a little bit about that scene just to remind anyone uh, who, like me, had forgotten many details about the Kavanaugh hearings, what that was, and then how you and Robin were able to get sort of behind the scenes and find out 
What was going on in that antechamber? Sure. So I think you're referring to September 28th of 2018, and this was the day we were expecting to see a vote in the Senate on Brett Kavanaugh. Um, And Jeff Flake, the somewhat independent-minded lame duck at the time, Republican from Arizona, had committed to voting for for Judge Kavanaugh, and that had been in the press that morning. He was very friendly with this Democratic senator, Chris Coons, from Delaware, and Coons had a very negative reaction when he heard about that news. Before they could gather for the vote— Senator Flake was confronted in an elevator on Capitol Hill by sexual assault survivors who told him uh, very strongly and sort of forcefully holding an elevator door open in the process, you need to look at us, you need to take us seriously, these are our stories too. If you're not going to take seriously Dr. Ford and presumably other allegations that had been made at the time against Judge Kavanaugh for alleged sexual misconduct— then you're not taking me seriously and, you know, you need to represent everyone. This is justice, you know, words to that effect. And it was this galvanizing moment where he just seemed shocked and stricken and kind of unsure what to say or do. Um, And the impact of it really was he thought about it and he reconvened with Senator Coons and together they decided that they should suggest an additional FBI background investigation, an extension upon what had already been done. Senator Coons had been angling for this, and he had made a speech that day that was hoping to appeal to Senator Flake, who he thought was his most likely partner across the aisle. But this elevator moment was so galvanizing that this probably paved the way for the decision. So together they agreed they would pause the proceedings. They would argue for this additional background investigation, which the Senate leadership accepted. And with the help of Senators Collins and Murkowski, they put together sort of a plan for having this additional process, had a short list of witnesses they thought should be interviewed. And what happened afterwards really is that the Republican senators huddled with the majority leader and kind of made a plan that they presented to the White House counsel's office. And really the ball was taken out of Senator Coons's hands at that point. And who were you able to talk to to sort of give you that backstory? Were, were Coons and Flake willing to, to speak with you? Yeah, for we spoke book? to both of them. Um, we were able to, to have access to them as well as to Senator Whitehouse, who was um, instrumental in all of this. We were able to ask questions of Senator Feinstein um, via email um, and, and Senator Amy Klobuchar as well. So the Democrats were cooperative in terms of sharing their experience of this. Mm-hmm. And it must be a challenge when you're dealing with a case that sparked such strong emotions from both sides to get people to speak when the wounds are still so fresh. How did you approach that, both as reporters and then when you were reflecting on that in the book? Robin? Yeah, I mean, this was very sensitive territory on, in a lot of ways. You kind of describe these hearings as triggering for a lot of people because it resonated on many levels. It uh, spoke to this political moment in our country where you have a president who uh, is very pugilistic and uh, there is the sense that it's important to throw darts to some extent and use language that can be incredibly inflammatory. And I think that has set a tone. Um, There's also the sense that people have taken to their corners and solidified their political positions without a whole lot of openness to hearing alternative points of view. Uh, You also had a Me Too movement kind of coming to a head with Christine Blasey Ford's testimony. Some viewed her as the apotheosis of that movement, an important figure and a hero in many ways. Others saw 
her as an example of Me Too gone too far and run amok and the idea that you can accuse someone of something they did when they were 17 and 18 and there is no kind of verifiable evidence of it and you could potentially ruin his life and career. So there are these polarized views of this. And what we really found was that people saw what they wanted to see in the story. It was kind of a Rorschach test and uh, did not necessarily go one level deeper to try to understand who is Brett Kavanaugh, what is his more extensive history and career, what does that show and what does that tell us, um, to try to understand these events in greater depth and and to really uh, actually find that what is ultimately our takeaway, which is there is this messy middle here of kind of human frailty and experience where there is no perfect answer or explanation to any of this, but everyone kind of... Um, tries to sort of deploy aspects of this story to serve their own agendas. And I think that really speaks to the time we're living through right now. And impeachment is just another example of that in terms of President Trump. Speaking of impeachment, Brett Kavanaugh recently appeared before the Federal Society's annual conference and protesters attended. And one of the things that they did in protest was hand out uh, flyers urging that Uh, Brett Kavanaugh be impeached. They said he was not fully truthful when he was testifying before the Senate and he should be impeached. Um, Now, there's only one Supreme Court justice who's ever been impeached, uh, Samuel Chase, who was impeached by the House of Representatives and he was not removed by the Senate. And uh, I think he was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. So that's how far back that goes. Uh, It's been a very, very long time since anyone really suggested it. When you were talking to people, is this something that was part of the the conversation that you were hearing, oh, he should be removed? It was not, really. I mean, the idea among some quarters that Brett Kavanaugh should be impeached has been in circulation this whole time. I mean, I know there are online petitions, among other things, uh, from before our book was published that get, get around. But until right before our book's publication, when people started sort of hearing about some of the things that were in the book— Um, including an allegation that had not before been published about another alleged incident that occurred during the freshman year at Yale with Kavanaugh and another woman in the class. We hadn't heard that very loudly. And all of a sudden you had Democratic presidential candidates calling for impeachment, among others. And certainly you've had pretty vibrant protest efforts to the extent that there are events. They've been on the Supreme Court steps there were handmaids in costume at the Federalist Society event you were talking about. I know here in Chicago, as well as in Washington, there was video of Christine Blasey Ford at the hearings playing outside. So this is a very raw wound for people, no doubt about it. But actually, our book focused a lot less on the protesters and kind of the political reaction among regular folks than it did on the sort of inside players, both in Kavanaugh's life, in Dr. Ford and Debbie Ramirez and other important figures' lives, as well as on Capitol Hill. So we certainly see it as an important part of the texture of all this. And we read a lot of the reporting and, you know, certainly talked to people in our lives and when we were traveling about this issue to get a gauge. But really, this was more about the sort of central figures and what their story was way back and then in 2018. So you just mentioned Dr. Ford and Deborah Ramirez. Were you able to speak to them as well for the book? We were. Uh, we kind of divided them according to the chapters of his life that each of us took because we were under a time pressure and we had to divide and conquer. Kate took the high school piece and that included Christine Blasey Ford. And she can speak to going out to meet with her in Palo Alto at length. 
And I uh, took Deborah Ramirez and went out to Boulder, Colorado and interviewed her. Now, you were at Yale at the same time as both Kavanaugh and Ramirez. Uh, Had you ever met or encountered either of them that you remember? I actually remembered both of them, yes. We had a friend group that had some overlap socially. My college roommates were varsity athletes, and Brett Kavanaugh hung out in a varsity athlete crowd, as did Deborah Ramirez, even though uh, Brett Kavanaugh did not ultimately make the varsity basketball team. That was his social cohort. And it's worth noting that there, the athletes at Yale somewhat stood out. They hung together. They were a little bit rowdier at times in, in a social setting. Brett also belonged to a fraternity known as Deke, which has a reputation for heavy drinking and some misogynistic behavior. So I knew him to say hello. I knew, I knew both of them just tangentially. I wasn't sure they would remember me. Before we move on, we're going to take a quick commercial break to hear from our sponsors. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Inner Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. Was there anything that you were surprised by when you were hearing about what their college experiences had been like and then you compared it to your own memories? Uh, One of the things that people really seem to have done is try to go back into their own memories of, well, what was I like in college? What was I like in high school? Oh, my gosh, that thing that happened when I was 14 was super messed up. What was it like for you um, when you were hearing their tales of college and going back and thinking about it yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. And it was one of my more striking takeaways from this whole process of reporting this book, which was to get inside, um, to try to get inside the experience of each of them, uh, realize that Brett Kavanaugh was coming from an environment in which he had been a big fish um, in a smaller pond, as as many of us were. I mean, you come, you distinguish yourself in high school, and you get to Yale, and you become, you know, one of many, and that can, you know, be a real sort of wake up call and kind of some cold water on your ego. And he was always kind of playing to the guys around him to some extent. And that's so much of what came across in this book was an effort to impress his kind of male peers, uh, even almost that was his priority in a certain way, which does dovetail with the high school experience that Kate can speak to about what he was like in those years. But in terms of Deborah Ramirez, I really felt like it gave me a sense of something that I think is important for all of us to think about, even to this day, that it certainly endures, which is the ex- that people come to Yale with different levels of experience and uh, a sense of entitlement and a sense of confidence. And she was a person of color. Her father is Puerto Rican. She grew up in an, a lower middle class area. Her parents had to take out loans to afford Yale. She had to work her way through Yale in work study programs, including serving meals at the dining halls to her classmates and cleaning up the dorm rooms um, for reunion weekends. She wa- experienced some teasing around the clothes she wore and some remarks about being Puerto Rican that were obviously quite hurtful at the time. And even though she didn't necessarily have a sense of identity politics then, 
all of those experiences stayed with her so that when she was at this party freshman year um, and became the butt of the joke, when Brett Kavanaugh exposed himself to her and she had been raised in a very conservative Catholic household. So it was very jarring and upsetting. She hadn't expected to touch a man's genitals until she was married. She felt foolish having uh, Brett Kavanaugh and his friends allegedly laugh at her. Um, was hugely impactful. You start to understand why an experience like that was so formative. And it certainly has made me more sensitive to this idea that not everybody comes in with the same tools. Mm-hmm. And Kate, did you experience something similar when looking into sort of the high school years? Yes and no. Um, definitely the contours of the alleged sexual misconduct are a little bit similar in the sense of Um, You have uh, allegedly a young Brett Kavanaugh sort of exerting power over a young woman. In this case, I think uh, a young Christine Blasey felt much more like Brett Kavanaugh's peer, although there were gender dynamics at play there where she obviously felt much less empowered. But, you know, she went to a similar school, had a similar background. As it turned out, years later, their fathers belonged to the same golf club in the Washington area and I think were somewhat friendly, at least acquaintances. And there was a lot of crisscrossing social interaction that did not exist with Deborah Ramirez and Brett Kavanaugh in 1983 and 4. Having said that, though, yes, um, this whole sort of social setting in which the friendships with The other guys are paramount, and alcohol is a huge kind of social element. Kavanaugh's class at Georgetown Prep, not unusual, by the way, for high school people then or now, but drinking was important, and uh, they had set a goal of drinking 100 kegs during their senior year of high school. Um, So they had these keg parties, and they would drink the kegs and getting the kegs and having a house where you could host a party, maybe because your parents were out of town and you could get through three kegs or five kegs and make the tally as as having had that occur at your house was sort of a thing. It was published in their underground newspaper. They had this annual event called Beach Week that, again, draws a lot of kids from the D.C. area. It was not unique to Georgetown Prep, but it was a largely unchaperoned week of sort of partying on the Maryland shore and, you know, a lot of heavy drinking and a lot of hookups and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, somewhat similar um, social dynamic. But again, you also have a, a young man who's a great student. He's doing two varsity sports. He's the captain of the basketball team. Teachers, fellow students, many of them remind him, remember him as a nice guy, a guy who was sort of a, a leader, who was popular, um, who clearly did well and was diligent and was not the instigator necessarily of bad behavior in many people's recollection, but would sometimes participate or even laugh from the sidelines. For example, when younger students like freshmen at Georgetown Prep were hazed, which went on. Um, And you hear stories about the freshmen being taped to lockers or stuffed into lockers or taped to a piece of gym equipment or thrown into trash cans. So it's a setting in which there is bullying and there is bad behavior for sure, and there's binge drinking to a degree that it actually made the college newspaper, the official one, not the underground one, as a source of concern for parents and faculty and the board. But uh, at the same time, you've got a well-performing, likable person in many memories. Let's get to the well-performing, likable person a little bit more. You know, during the hearings and after Dr. Ford, her story came out, we heard a lot about high school and college. We heard a lot about fully grown family man you know, with two daughters and and a respected judge. What was that middle period like? And what did you really kind of come away with that 
feeling about the adults, Brett Kavanaugh, if, if you can share that at all. That was very important to us as a missing piece of this that we wanted to go back at because we did feel like it was absent. There was almost no discussion about it in, in during the period of the hearings. And it was meaningful. You see very much to what uh, Kate alluded to, which is coming out of college where his classmates thought, wow, I didn't even know Brett was smart. They heard he was getting awards. They saw him admitted to Yale Law School, which, as you know, is not easy to do. And so he had kind of been a covert student in a way and distinguished himself. And he also was quite ambitious. You see that even though he may have had political predilections, he was not at all obvious or overt about them. He didn't join things. He didn't speak up. He wasn't a public figure. And there were opportunities for him to do that. There was the Yale Republicans group, for example, um, and there were protests on campus around apartheid. There were there were issues that and he just didn't engage on that stuff, which I do think looking back on says something about perhaps preserving this everyman quality that could offend that would offend no one and be a viable candidate for the court, which is not an, an easy thing to maintain over time. And Justice Kavanaugh's mother was a judge, too. And she became right? a judge later in life. And that was a clear inspiration to him. And he he definitely earned his way along in terms of the career path, but he also had great connections. And one thing led to another where at Yale Law School, uh, we had George Priest, who was one of his professors, one of the few conservative professors there, recommend Kavanaugh um, when Judge Kaczynski was looking for a new clerk. And it was only because Judge um, because George Priest was impressed with Brett Kavanaugh on the basketball court. They played pickup games together and he thought he had good manners. He said he distinguished himself more on ba- in basketball than he did in his torts class. Then you see him get a series of summer associate jobs at corporate firms. And it's worth noting that he decided not to go the private route and to earn a lot of money, which he certainly could have. And then he gets a clerkship and he works for Judge Stapleton initially and then for Judge Kaczynski. So he does a second clerkship and then into two terms under George Bush and working on the Star Report. Um, Don't forget Justice Kennedy, too. Oh, and he clerked for Justice Kennedy. So many connections were made along the way that ended up serving him, including with Don McGahn, who ended up being the White House counsel to Donald Trump, who shepherded him through the confirmation process. So you see all of that evolve. And you also see these these 12 years on the D.C. Circuit when he, frankly, was not predictably conservative all the time. In fact, we talk about in our book how some Republicans had reservations about his candidacy because he thinking he wasn't conservative enough. And when he was on the D.C. Circuit, sometimes he voted predictably, but other times he disappointed conservatives on it, on rulings like Obamacare, for example. And yes, he had an abortion decision, but they felt it was somewhat of a temperate response when they wanted a stronger one from him. And also you see that his colleagues and those who argued against him and clerks very meaningfully who worked for him admire him across the board. They describe him as a nice, very mild-mannered, generous colleague and and person. Uh, They admire his jurisprudence. They say he tried to keep politics out of his courtroom and, and out of the evaluation process when it came to deciding cases. And you also see him very much in earnest promoting women on the court, that he read an article about how women were not becoming Supreme Court clerks. And he decided to take that on as a cause. Perhaps that was a strategic move. Perhaps it was in earnest. Whatever the motivation, he did do that in a meaningful way and hired more than any federal judge. And 
uh, now has hired all female clerks on the Supreme Court, which even Ruth Bader Ginsburg has commended. And these clerks have commented publicly on his mentorship. And in, in one of them I spoke to just talked about how, A, she never felt uncomfortable in his presence, but she also talked about how he supported her even after she worked for him making sure that she went on into her career and had um, some sense of, of mentorship going forward. And many of them spoke to that experience. Well, Robin and Kate, I want to thank you both for joining us to talk about your book, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. I think as a final question, I'd like to talk about the ending. It's hard to end a book where, you know, you weren't able to speak directly with, with Judge you know, Justice Kavanaugh. What he will go on to do on the Supreme Court is still a mystery to us here in the present. And, you know, there's so much that we cannot make definitive statements about or ever know for sure. So when it came time to, you know, write that final page, you, you chose this quote from the Aeneid. And I just would love to hear more about why you chose that and how that rounded out uh, what you intended to do with the book. Sure. I think, uh, spoiler alert, you're referring to the last line in the book, which is, um, I'm paraphrasing, but that Virgil quote, someday it will be helpful to remember even these things. And we thought that really spoke to the quality of this topic, which is that it's very painful. Certainly it was painful for the key players. It's been very painful for Americans in all different locations and of all different political persuasions and, and you know, beliefs. It was a little painful to report and write, frankly. We really wanted to do right by everyone to the degree that we could and be as fair and and certainly truthful um, as we possibly could uh, in marshalling our facts. So um, as we wrapped it up, we really debated whether to talk about what we thought had happened, especially in these cases of these alleged sexual assaults or acts of misconduct, And we decided the best thing to do would be to put together our reporting and just simply state what we knew, what we didn't know, as we had throughout the book, but in a kind of a summary fashion. And also to say, look, we're human beings. We're both moms. We both have a son and a daughter. I have multiple daughters. And, you know, we wanted to look at this through another prism, which is really the prosecutor Martha Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh's mother's prism, which is to say, look at this in a way that uses your common sense what rings true, what rings false, and kind of go accordingly. So we looked at the Ford allegations and everything we had learned, and we find Ford credible for a lot of reasons, the facts about her life, the details around sort of who she was and who those young men, including Kavanaugh, were very much checked out. With Deborah Ramirez, we find her credible. Uh, Robin was able to find a number of people who were able to corroborate her story from either days after the alleged event or, you know, within a few years, pretty close proximity. We looked at Julie Swetnick, who was another accuser that we haven't talked about in this podcast, but we found that as it pertained to a young Brett Kavanaugh and a friend of his, that did not ring true. So we tried to lay all that out and say, you know, we know that as women and as human beings, sexual assault does happen. Um, It's notoriously underreported. And yet it's very frequent among women and among the women who are assaulted, 40% of those assaults occur at the hands of someone who's an acquaintance. And the incidence of false reporting, we don't have an exact figure, but it's almost certainly double-digit percentage points or 10% at the very most, according to the statistics we've seen. So we know from our own personal observations and friends and family that it does happen, that it's notoriously underreported. 
And at the same time, we can't tell you as journalists that it clearly did happen the way Dr. Ford said or clearly happened the way Deborah Ramirez said, other than to rely on these corroborators and these substantiated details. So we kind of explain all that. And then importantly, we declined to take an opinion on what should have happened with all of this. We are not opining on whether or not we think this process had the right outcome. Even though the FBI investigation was quite short and lacked some of the context and hopefully the richness that we discovered in the course of putting together our book in terms of the facts and the the landscape, whether or not the outcome was the right one anyway or should have been different or whether there should be steps taken now toward some other outcome or even just an inquiry into the process itself, which has been suggested by some, we leave that up to the reader. And we know that there are lots of people out there with strong opinions and very different and various valid opinions. So we just try to give people the benefit of a little more insight and information to work with. And if my listeners are interested in finding out more about the book or in catching you guys on your book tour, uh, where could they go? I mean, we never created our own web page, but we are, you know, it's easy to Google us and see some of our appearances as well as our bylines. We continue to you know, have be daily journalists at the New York Times and to continue our work there. You can follow us on Twitter um, at Kate Kelly or at our Pogrebin. You can look us up at the Times. We have been posting upcoming events on social media and um, hope to have more details in the near future. Well, thank you to my guests, Robin Pogrebin and Kate Kelly. And thank you to my listeners of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.